Hello and welcome to the Cynical Podcast, where we take deep dives into the shallow waters of today's star-studded films, blockbuster movies, and most hyped popcorn flicks. We're your hosts, Malika, Clacy, and Will, and today we're going to talk about Knives Out. Before we get started, here is your spoiler warning. Walk away now if you care about the plot of Knives Out. Which you should. So stop listening. And go, go see, see the movie, movie. first. Think Definitely go see the movie. That's a spoiler on what we think of the movie, but go see the movie. It's worth it. Podcast spoiler, not movie spoiler, but also movie spoilers. <laughs> yeah. All of the spoilers. <laughs> okay. Anyway, let's get into the plot. So Knives Out, directed by Ryan Johnson, is a witty whodunit set in modern-day America. The film is truly star-studded with Chris Evans, Tony Collette, Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Shannon, Don Johnson, Ana de Armas, and more as the heirs to the fortune of the lauded mystery writer Arlen Thrombey. Trombi, played by Christopher Plummer, is found dead at the start of the movie by the housekeeper, and Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig, with a heavy southern drawl, is hired to figure out who committed the murder. What plays out is a clever twist on the classic murder mystery, where the film cuts to the chase and the culprit is revealed early on, and the plot becomes focused on how to get away with murder. So guys, what did you think? I thought it was really, really good. Really liked it. It was fun. Had the classic murder mystery feel, like an Agatha Christie story, but it also was modernized and it didn't try too hard to be too on the nose for the most part as a modernized story. It managed to fit this classic feel into a tale that came from today. I just love an original movie. You know, it's just, I was like, mm, for adults, there's great actors in it. This is not about, I don't know, some adaptation of something that's probably adapted 8,000 times. I really just enjoyed that this was a movie for adults. It was well-crafted. It was well-acted. I, I freaking love this. Totally agree. And this movie was made for me. I love suspense-filled murder mystery movies. And then, as you said, Clay, like anything that's original, ugh, that is my biggest complaint with Hollywood these days, that everything is a reboot or based on a book or a short story or a comic. Like nobody is coming up with something original anymore. And here's Ryan Johnson directing and writing this movie. And I think he killed it. I think it's so good. This is only the fifth movie directed by Ryan Johnson and quite a departure from The Last Jedi coming from a big expanded universe and, you know, the movie making machine of Disney, even though I was a huge fan of The Last Jedi and I thought it was one of the best Star Wars movies, but something that is way different and new, original, like we said, it felt like a classic yet felt like something completely fresh. Yeah. And I think he specifically wanted to make a movie like this after doing The Last Jedi because if you look at his filmography before having been brought onto the Star Wars Disney kind of machine, he did a lot of really interesting con- like intrinsic type films. Even Looper, which is I guess his biggest movie before then, was still very much an internal struggle type of story and, you know. So I think he he specifically was like I want to make a movie like this again or this type of movie where I'm not beholden to the powers that be because I think um, Lionsgate gave him a lot of freedom I believe and a lot of creative control to say go make the movie you think you need to make. Yeah, it's definitely a return to his murder mystery or just mystery in general roots. But this time he has access to all of these big stars because of The Last Jedi, because of you know all the hype around the films he's done in the 
you know, the recent past. So, you know, I think the acting really helped sell the movie. Um, the cast was very colorful and I, you know, I really enjoyed everyone's portrayal. So it worked really well in my opinion. Yeah. And what a crazy cast. I mean, a lot of stars, a ton of really, you know, trendy stars right now, James Bond and, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis and Tony Collette is kind of hot coming off of hereditary. So Captain America, Captain yeah. America. Yeah. Ana de Armas is really a big up and comer right now. So right after Blade Runner. Yep. The new yeah. one. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think too that this movie is performed much better than I think most would have expected. So at this point, they've only released the five day numbers and it's already amassed, I think, 70 million worldwide on a 40 million budget. And that's in five wow. days. Wow. Oh, so, that's good. And this is the kind of movie that typically would have legs where you get a lot of word of mouth. People may be seeing it after the first week or so after they're seeing reviews. So I have complete confidence this will cross the $100 million mark. Um, and I think that's only a good thing for Ryan Johnson and for other filmmakers like this. And maybe having studios reconsider giving control to these auteurs, to these younger directors and letting them make the films they think matter instead of just trying to get a short thing out. Right. And I, I honestly think that the cast helps with that too, because you see a poster, you see Daniel Craig, you're like, oh, I'll check this out. Maybe the story isn't something I've heard. And, you know, it's not a plot from a book or a movie that I've heard before, but, you know, these people are people I recognize. Let me see what they have to deliver. And, you know, speaking of the cast, sometimes when you have this many big stars, it can feel overstuffed and they're fighting to make sure every single star has enough screen time. But somehow it worked really well in this film. I never thought that at all. I felt like they each played off of each other really well and every character was there for a reason and played a critical role. And so it was very thought out. Didn't even mention Christopher Plummer who just won the Oscar for Best Actor and All the Money in the World. Uh, but I agree. And I think a big part of it was, you know, there was a clear lead with Ana de Armas and a clear, pretty clear second with Daniel Craig as kind of second billing. And then the rest of the cast, they were playing characters, which really fit well. It wasn't a whole lot of competing for that top spot, the spotlight, the limelight of the film. Everyone kind of played into their roles and, you know, experienced character actors like Michael Shannon. I love Michael Shannon and almost everything he's in. Yeah, you're so right. I was thinking the exact same thing. Like these people were brought on to play characters. They weren't brought on just because we need famous people to get asses in seats. I think Ryan Johnson, like you said, Malika, with the clout that he's getting, having done the last movie that he did and just, you know, the reputation that he's building for himself as a filmmaker, I think he was able to call in favors and just convince people on the strength of his work to say, hey, are you interested in doing this? I have a part. I think you're a good fit. I don't think it was Lionsgate saying, we got to get Michael Shannon, which to be fair, has anyone ever said that Michael <laughs> Shannon? He's just right. like, well, you, when he's there, you're like, wow, he's magnetic. But no one's like, got to get Michael Shannon for this role. <laughs> well, and we didn't even say Chris Evans, who is Captain America. Like, Yeah, one of the biggest, most um, highest built stars right now. And him taking a backseat and playing not really a backseat, but you know, playing a character for this movie, not really, you know, fighting for 
that critical acclaim or that top billing that he's had and everything leading up to this point. I mean, one could argue he's very comfortable in ensemble cast because that's been all the Avenger movies. So he's probably the most comfortable of all of them in that capacity. But you're right. He probably has the most notable name and face and yet doesn't really show up until the second half of the movie. He's kind of sort of mentioned. He's here and there. He's glimpsed, but that's it. Yeah. Yeah, but not really, um, you know, main character on the screen quite yet. But I thought that was one of the brilliant storytelling choices in this movie because so at the really the very beginning within the first 30 minutes, we're told Ana de Armas, Marta, she killed Harlan Thrombey. And so for the first third of the movie, we're just led to believe we know who did it and it's about her story and how she's going to cover up how she accidentally took part in the killing of, you know, this family patriarch of this giant family estate. And they make you believe that first of all, that she murdered him. And then it's like, no, that it was suicide. And then no, maybe who was murdered. It keeps you on your toes. Just when you think you're like, Oh, this is predictable. I know where this is going. It twists. It turns on you. And that's why I just loved every moment of this. I was like a giddy school child the whole time, except for the few minutes that I did cry. (laughs) I can't Uh, believe someone up the count. Can't believe Malika cried at this movie. There's a really, really heartfelt moment when Marta, played by Anna Demars, realizes that she's given the wrong medication to Harlan Thrombey, and there's no anger, there's no like, what could, you, how could you do this to me? It's like, okay, let's save you, let's save your mother, and it is just a beautiful moment of self-sacrifice, and it just got me, and I was just like, not weeping, but definitely tears were coming down my face. And you're right, it was a really tender moment between Ana de Armas and Christopher Plummer. And it really showed their great chemistry as actors in that scene where both of them knew something was wrong right when, you know, Marta reacted to inserting the wrong drugs. Inserting? Injecting the wrong drugs? I would say injecting. Injecting. I'm not a drug user. I don't know. (laughs) feels a little weird. Yeah. Penetrative? Providing him with the wrong prescription medication and a mutual understanding between the two of them. And it leads to, you know, later in the movie, it lays the groundwork for the understanding of why he likes her so much. And once again, spoiler alert, decides to leave all of his will and all of his belongings to her because you see that strong connection between the two of them on scene. Yeah. And I think that kind of ultimately ties into that she has become his family in a way that his blood relatives have not. I mean, if you can imagine these group of privileged, rich assholes from New England are not great to each other. So he's realizing in his twilight years that he doesn't want his legacy to be these people. He doesn't want the work that he's done because he's a lauded mystery. like Malika has mentioned in the summary. He is a person of note and he realizes that to pass his legacy down, he wants to give it to someone else that will honor it and will do something wonderful with themselves. And that kind of points to Marta. So it's kind of amazing the machinations of what he decides in the moment when he realizes that he's been accidentally overdosed because Marta even kind of breaks down saying like, well, with this much of a dosage of morphine, you'll have maybe 10 minutes before you're dead. So he has to think through all of this stuff and within five, 10 minutes before the drug is supposed to hit that he's thinking, okay, what should I do? All right. I already put Marta in the will. 
I need to make sure she can get out of this so that she can get the money, but also make sure there's no suspicions that arise that point to her, but also make this look like a suicide. Like that like unraveling of Harlan Thrombey's mind that Christopher Plummer pulls off is so fascinating. And I almost wish I got way more of the movie of him just doing these types of things. You get a lot of it in flashback, but wow, what an actor and just a great heartbeat to this film. And you actually learn a lot about him in that scene, even though it's not a very long scene, right? You know that he's a very successful mystery writer. So somebody who clearly likes thinking through all of the different scenarios and who could have done it and all these things. And so his mind just works that way. But also the fact that once he realizes that there's been this mix-up with the medication and that he's going to die soon, he chooses to slit his own throat, which is a very dramatic way to die. And I think that feeds into the way that he talks to his family members and some of the other things that plays out. This is a man who loves drama. And so that's how he wanted to go. And he's like, okay. I, I think he even says that at one point. Like, does, I, want yeah. a di- I want a dramatic end to all of this. And he gets it whether he, you know, it was his time to go or not, but fed so much into who this man was and why certain things play out the way they do. Well, it's interesting you say that because I saw this with my entire family while I was home over Thanksgiving and my dad's a doctor, my mom and two of my sisters are nurses. And so they were really over analytical about the scene of injecting the morphine And first of all, the first thing my dad said was 100 milligrams of morphine would not take 10 minutes to kick in. If it was injected straight into you, it would be almost instantaneous. But he was talking about plot holes and how later in the movie, we see that she gives CPR to Franny, the housekeeper, once she's injected with morphine and that the biggest plot hole of this movie would be that if she did end up giving him the morphine, she could have just given him CPR until the ambulance showed up and they probably would have been able to save him anyways. But I think they did kind of cover for that with him being so goddamn extra about it, (laughs) about wanting to move quickly and protect her from potential liability and then slitting his own throat like this old over the top grandiose murder mystery writer wanting to go out with a dagger to his own throat like he didn't really give her a chance to act after she was panicking trying to find the medication to save him he was just like this is what you're doing I'm out. Peace. (laughs) Right. She was trying to call the cops, trying to get the ambulance there. And had he gone into shock, she probably would have, but she never was given the chance, right? Yeah, he literally like holds the dial down on the phone while she's trying to call the ambulance. But she she can't give him CPR when he's standing upright. Like she's got to wait for him to collapse. So it's kind of like she might have done those things. So I don't know if it was necessarily a plot hole, but I'm also not a doctor. So like I'm not looking at it with that critical of an eye. Yeah, and I agree. And I said, well, one of the things you just have to accept is One, the movie magic of it all, and two, that 90% of the viewing audience probably aren't medical professionals, so they won't have that baseline knowledge of, like, I had no idea what 100 milligrams of morphine would do to you. I was like, okay, I believe you. But what I did notice is she does say that you're going to die in 10 minutes. But then later on, when the housekeeper has been injected, we first of all, we don't know how much she's been injected with, but it's two hours later that they find her and she's still alive. So I remember thinking, huh, that's weird. Why is it not affecting her? I mean, granted, she's not an 85-year-old man who with whatever other health problems. So it could be led to that. But the fact that they didn't address that at all, I mean, she did eventually die. So maybe it was 
right. You know, that's you know, what we, I was we also don't know how much died. morphine she was given. Right. But like the two hour gap, I guess was the only thing that was like, Hmm, suspicious what's going on. Yeah, yeah. that's fair. But one thing that's important to know, I think too, Will, is that even had she saved him and if he had gone through and saying, yeah, let's call the ambulance to your point, there would have definitely been an inquiry and she probably would have been investigated and then fired and her mom would have been deported anyway. So exactly. I don't think it would have mattered if he had lived. That's kind of the point. Like the moment that the mistake happens, there's going to be an inquiry into her actions and then she's going to be scrutinized. So I think he was just trying to spare her that more. So he cared more about her future than his life, which I thought was super powerful. That's the kind of bond that they had. And the fact that he felt that deep of affection for her more so than his own children shows just how much of an impact she had on his life, but also maybe how just shitty his children were and the people in his life were that were surrounding him. And something I really liked about this movie is as I was watching, you know, murder mystery, you know that every single detail is going to come back to mean something later on. So as you know, I was sitting in the theater, I was kind of looking for potential plot holes. You know, one of the first things I thought was, okay, if she did inject him with morphine, it's going to show up in his toxicology yep, report. Same. I thought the same thing. So she's screwed anyway. And the other plot hole I thought could potentially come up was even though at the end she was proven innocent, she did commit crimes along the way, obstruction of justice and destruction of evidence. And so I thought, well, maybe that's going to come back to bite her. So when Daniel Craig is in the middle of his exoneration speech for her, he does admit she did commit some crimes, but they're not really anything compared to killing this powerful man. Yeah. And most importantly, the only crime that would have impacted her inheriting the money is if she had something to do with his death. So her being involved in any sort of cover up while bad and she probably would have been you know, arrested or at least um, convicted in some capacity, it wouldn't necessarily prevent her from getting the money because the most important thing was proving that she was someone responsible for killing him because that was the whole Slayer rule that they talked about after the reading of the will. So that was an interesting way to close that loop of I like the fact they called out the specific rule. They had the lawyer there to explain the whole thing. So it kind of comes back around to be like, well, she didn't kill him or she didn't have any part in killing him. Really? She committed other crimes, but that doesn't mean she's no longer entitled to the money. But to your point, well, Harlan Thrombey thinks of every possible thing. He's like, okay, drive your car here, park it there, climb through this way. Like, don't let anyone see you. But the one thing that he doesn't foresee is that they're going to see in the toxicology report that he's got 100 milligrams of morphine in his system and yet he chooses to slit his throat for the drama of it. He could have just you know, had her leave and pretend to commit suicide by injecting himself with morphine. That would have been an easy way to cover it up. No one would know. Like That is the cause of death after all. Like Just have him hold it in his hand. He had few minutes to write a suicide note. They could have done it that way. I mean, obviously there wouldn't have been a clever movie afterwards and any of this. But then if he just laid there holding the morphine needle in his hand, he would have laid there for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Then Wouldn't realize, have died. Oh, damn. I'm okay. <laughs> What's going on? Yeah. Right. But he wasn't trying to commit suicide. You know, he, he didn't expect right. that night that this is going to be his last night. That's but when true. it did happen, he was, he was prepared for death. Yeah, but then it wouldn't be a murder mystery and then the movie would be Harlan <laughs> right, Thrombey yeah. takes medication. Also, I end. think that's the only, if we have to identify a plot hole, yeah. for me it's that because everything else was so meticulously planned. And I mean, granted, very quickly, he is a very smart man, but he had thought of every other scenario, like even come down the stairs wearing my robe and pretend to be me and it'll help your alibi. But 
you know, that one, not even a minor thing. It's pretty major. Yeah, the as, cause of death. And as a mystery writer, you think he would know that. Right. Like anyone can Google or find out the types of things that coroners test for when someone dies. It's yeah. very straightforward. It, yeah. There's almost always a toxicology report, especially in suicides. That's true. But I think the key is this man is extra AF. <laughs> You know, he's yeah. like, I'm dying by slitting my own throat. Goodbye. Oof. Yeah, it's so dramatic. Yeah. And that knife that he always has in his portraits and stuff is what he uses. And also neatly sets up the end where he talks about what's real and what's fake. And he's got these fake knives and this is the real one. And that's what he uses to, to slit his own throat. But it kind of ties perfectly to the end when we find out who actually did commit the murder. (laughs) And, you know, there's a fake knife that um, is a nice reveal there. Yeah. And to kind of show how the apple doesn't fall too far from the drama tree, all his children are a hot mess. His whole family is just the right side of bonkers for me. I mean, you know, in this kind of world where people are getting sick of the privilege being the most depicted in film, I think this is the perfect way to do it of showing the kind of nefarious side to them and revealing it in slow turns instead of having them be mustache twirling villains at the start. Kind of the way the whole thing unfolds is, you know, after Harlan Thromby dies is, you know, the whole family comes back for the funeral after his 85th birthday party and the cops are investigating. So they say, hey, no one leave town. We have some questions. That's where we're introduced to Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc, um, assisting the two investigators from the local authorities and you get glimpses into kind of the face of all these characters, the fronts they like to put on for the world. And then slowly but surely, the real people beneath, the real assholes beneath get revealed through the form of flashback storytelling of them all recounting their last moments with Harlan and their interactions with one another, and especially with Marta, because it's weird. They all like to treat her like she's family, and they kind of have this running uh, gag of, oh, I would have had you at the funeral, but I was outvoted. Like several people say that to her, but then conversely, they mention her in passing to others, and none of them know what country her family is from because they're all just privileged, ignorant assholes. And that actually brings me to one of the interesting frameworks for this movie is that we as the audience actually know more than any single character. And that's an unusual take for a murder mystery. Usually you're just following the detective, the main detective, or one character, or some murder mysteries you're actually following the murderer to see if they get away with it whoever it is but there's one character and you know what they know and it's like as they discover stuff the audience does but here as you said clay with the flashbacks you see what they're telling the cops then you see what really happened and you're able to put together all the different pieces of information from the various family members to make your own assumptions but yet at any given moment you probably still don't know what's going on and that is the beauty of this movie is that as soon as you think that you figured it out, it switches on you. And then you think, okay, this is going to be a murder mystery. Who done it? Then it's like, okay, how are they going to get away with it? Oh, no, but then she didn't actually do it. It's like, I would think there's like three or four acts in this movie. Yeah. And that's what I loved about the opening of this movie. You know, they use the trope from Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon film school. What up? What a nerd. <laughs> but, you know, in Rashomon, it kind of forged the trope of a murder and then seeing the perspective play out from three different people and then using those three accounts of what happened to try and piece together what actually did happen. And I love how they use that at the beginning of the movie 
But you're right. And what is super interesting about this murder mystery compared to others is that we think we know all of the answers about halfway through. We know, okay, she accidentally killed him and now it's about her trying to get away with it. And that's something that's pretty unique for a murder mystery because it's not really a mystery. You know, you know what happened in the murder. So that's what really kept me strung along throughout the movie. I was just thinking at kind of a metatextual standpoint, where is this movie going to go with this if we already know who did it? You know, we're following along with her cover up, but that's not really much of a mystery. So where does, you know, that aspect come into the story? And they did a really good job of at least getting me to buy in that she actually did do it. Watching it, we think we know the whole story and then it all unravels as the film goes along. And they really get you to root for her too. You know, Ana de Armas plays this character so well where we haven't even talked about one of her most notable traits is that she cannot lie. She actually vomits, a lot of vomit, every time she even thinks about lying, which is such an interesting trait to give a murderer. Like from the get-go, you know this about her, even before you know that she thought that she committed the murder. Yeah, Malika, you're so right because they kind of mention it in the movie as well in the text of Harlan saying to her, well, tell the truth, but just parts of it to get around the fact that her tick is that she can't lie. So I thought that was really cool because it makes the audience immediately think, well, we know she's telling the truth. Why would we get this flashback of her interaction with Harlan going through this whole rigmarole of covering this up and her interfacing with Daniel Craig and the detectives and she doesn't puke after that point in which she kind of reveals the bits of the truth um, that Harlan told her to. So we are now assuming that this is a person that we can trust and someone that's innocent, which is true. But then to a point, she realizes how she can use that to her advantage. So I thought that was really cool that they basically gave us a tool to say, this is your protagonist. This is your heroine. And she can't lie to you. And I'm like, wait, but can she? And that is what made this movie so interesting because they gave you assumptions. There was just, you know, assumptions that you inherit by just knowing that this is a murder mystery and you kind of just take with you. It's like kind of like what you're, um, you're talking about with your dad, Will, of like he was reading into little nitpicks because he thought he knew where this was going, but you don't know where this was going. And that's what made it so fun. Yeah. And I really liked the vomit gag, pun not intended, but also works. But I love the vomit gag because one, you're right. It gets you to buy in that she is telling the truth and she's telling us everything she knows because otherwise there'd be a physical reaction to it. And two, because it plays into the brevity that's in this film throughout. You know, it could be really easy for a murder mystery to be super serious the whole time, try and keep the tone dark. A detective, Holmes and Watson, trying to figure out what's going on. But it really was fun throughout the movie. There was a lot of laughs. There were jokes throughout the movie and it simultaneously took itself seriously, but never too seriously. Yeah. It reminded me of clue a lot because I, I, I love that movie, but you know, sometimes in these movies, like you said, well, like there's some characters who are the comic relief and then everybody else can be really serious. And that's usually the tone these murder mysteries take. But in this, I feel like they spread the comic relief across all of the characters at some point in the movie, a character did something funny or said something funny enough that like it was not a super heavy movie, right? It was you laughed as much as you were like, ooh, what's going to happen next? It was like a really nice balance of both of those things. And even the character who at the beginning was the most serious, Daniel Craig's Benoit Blanc, 
you know, he's sitting in the dark in the shadows by the piano during the interviews and he's tapping the same note on the piano and it gives him this dark, mysterious vibe at the very beginning of the movie. But then later on in the movie, he's talking about it's a donut and there's a donut hole that belongs in the middle of the donut, but there's a hole inside of the donut hole and it has its own donut hole. (laughs) And, you know, he's sitting in the car jamming to music while she's dealing with another murder that's going on right outside of him. 20 feet away from him. Yeah, Yeah, it's fun where it balances that seriousness with also some comedy might be a little strong, but it is comedy. You know, it's a fun movie. I would say, yeah, some of it's wit. Maybe Wit, like, yeah. it's definitely a lot of Very comedy, witty, but some which, of it, yeah. again, totally my type of movie. I love super smart, funny movies, um, which I would say this was one of them. But another thing that his accent allowed was some of the insults. I think that Chris Evans threw at him. One of my favorites was he calls him CSI KFC. <laughs> yeah, I love that. So good. <laughs> so good. And then what was the other one? Like Leghorn. Foghorn Leghorn. Leghorn Yeah. Yeah. I forget exactly the way he did it, but it was Oh, and then there was like a another, I think, Kentucky Fried. Yeah. Some sort of, you know, adjective attached to it at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It led to some some good moments for sure. Since this movie was clearly inspired by your classic murder mystery movies, you know, Ryan Johnson has said that he was inspired by Sleuth and Agatha Christie and Clue as well. There were some very classic tropes in this, like the red herring, Chekhov's gun, you know, the old mansion as a setting and, you know, the character profiling that kicks off this movie. What did you guys think of some of those beats that were hit? Yeah, I really liked it. So the introduction of the setting is very traumatic, which is great. You get the kind of bombastic violin that's like frantic, like, (laughs) and the dogs are running wild across the grounds. And then you get the objects that clearly Harlan has collected through the years. And then you're finally introduced to Fran, the housekeeper, going up to provide Harlan with his breakfast and she finds his dead body and that kicks off the whole murder mystery. But everything about that was just fantastic. Like the music, the attention to detail. Um, they kind of linger on that mug in the beginning, which comes back his coffee mug. Yeah. And it was yeah. like the, my house, my rules, my coffee, I think yeah. it said. Um, so the attention to detail is probably, I think the best part about any murder mystery, because all of the details that you observe are there for a reason. It's either to throw you off or to either draw your attention to it directly or indirectly. Cause it's all going to come back together right. later. Right. There were so many things that they tried to draw your attention to, so many little items that you thought, this is what's going to unravel the story. There was the letter that Harlan wrote to his daughter. He had that baseball that kept on showing up throughout the film. One that I thought was going to end up playing a much bigger role in the film, but Walt's wife, Donna, played by Ricky Lindholm, she's the woman wearing the pearls, and she's always kind of in the family scenes, but she's never really playing a key role in any of the discussions between the children. And she's walking in the background of some of the flashback scenes. I don't think she was actually interviewed by the cops on screen at least. And that's why the whole time I was thinking, oh, they didn't interview her. She's in all these scenes. She's at the party. She's going to be the one that has something to do with it. But I think it was just another thing to get the viewer's mind rolling of what what's her deal? What she have to do with it to throw you off of the scent? Yeah, well, that's such a good point because one thing this movie does really well is play with your expectations, which is another trope of the murder mystery. Because obviously, whenever you have any sort of story that is built upon revealing things to people, the human nature is just going to dictate that people are going to want to figure out what it is immediately. So that's been kind of a, a trope that's kind of come into murder mysteries, trying to 
outsmart your audience. And I think this movie did a great job of that. Not just outsmarting us, but leading us down the path we think we know and then flipping it on its head. So thinking that, oh, this detective is here to unearth who killed Harlan. Oh, we find that out. He doesn't know that, but we know it. So like all those little twists and turns were just so expertly done. And you can tell that there's a lot of love and care taken with the script. Yeah, and that's almost starting to be Ryan Johnson's thing, if you will, and all of his movies that he's directed. The Last Jedi, the whole time they're talking about the ancestry of Rey and who her parents are. And then at the end of the movie, spoiler alert to anyone who hasn't seen Star Wars Last Jedi, but the answer is they're no one. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, they're left you in a ditch to go spend gambling money. They don't care about you. There is no family history to you, which kind of subverts expectations. And same with Looper, you know, this whole story about him going back in time to kill this futuristic baby Hitler, but the way they prevent it is by not killing him because what actually caused him to become this evil person was that they would have killed him in yeah, the real the time. Murder attempt? <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I like right. that movie. Don't remember a lot of the details. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I know No Brick, which is one of his earlier films, is similar to I cannot for the life of me remember the plot, but I know that it is this it's a story of a young man who's trying to figure out who murdered this woman that he a friend crush of his. Um, so it's again that similar like who done it situation. Yeah, and I guess he's just really honing in on his craft of trying to get the audience to go down one path in their mind, believe one thing, but then flipping it on its head as to what the answer actually is. I think I've said this a few times, but they don't just do it once, though. There's, I think, three or four times. It's like, okay, no, it's shifting here. No, it's this way. It's like you just don't know which way it's going to go. And just when you're about to get bored, it changes again. So there were some moments where I was like, okay, like, as you said, well, like, where is this possibly going? And we figured it out. We know everything. And then we really just don't. And I think that's just so good. Yeah. So and good. ultimately, I think this is a film and a filmmaker that trusts his audience. It's you're not being handheld through a lot of it, which I appreciate because to me, I do go to movies to be provoked and to be, you know, to think. I mean, I enjoy sometimes seeing a mindless action movie. Shout out Hobbs and Shaw. But it's <laughs> nice to be engaged on that kind of intellectual level with the movie that's in front of you. And I think that's exactly what this movie was aiming to do. Right. And that's what Ryan Johnson is playing on in this. The first time Benoit Blanc brings up the donut with the hole in the middle. <laughs> you really we, didn't like that, did you? No, I actually loved it because <laughs> it also it brings the audience into it in a meta aspect because he talks about the donut with a hole in the middle and we think as the audience, we know what that missing hole is, but right, right, he, yeah. then he brings it up again. We don't know the hole. There is a hole within that hole. And so while we think we know all the answers, there actually are a few more that we have no idea what they are. And actually he knows more than we do the whole time, which is, you know, the end of this movie is, is the final twist is like, as you know, we've all mentioned, you think that you know what's going on. Uh, we have a lot more information because we have all of the flashbacks. We've seen what people are telling other people, what people are actually doing. And yet there's this whole piece that we're missing. It's the donut within the donut within the donut that we don't that's even like, know. And he had the whole hole? time. <laughs> well, and right. another great one that he uses in this is focusing in on the drop of blood on her sneakers when she's at home to get the audience thinking, oh, this is going to be her undoing. This is how she's going to get caught. Yeah, yeah. And he brings that back not to get her caught, but to say he actually 
knew that she was involved the whole time and he was keeping her close to try and, you know, use her deception to help bring out the truth, which I thought was really cool. Damn, that's so good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah, and this movie, I think, has a lot to say to not just on murder mystery as a genre, but on like the type of characters that inhabit that kind of a movie. And it's something you can probably even see in some of Ryan Johnson's earlier work. Like I think especially the last Jedi of kind of thinking about what it means to be, I guess, privileged or to not have privilege. Cause like, that's kind of race whole thing, right? Like they, people are assuming she's a Skywalker. She's part of this dynasty and this legacy of Jedi, but she's not. And that's kind of the point. And that's basically Marta in this movie. She's not part of this legacy, but she's more worthy than a lot of people that think they are because she's pitted against these privileged people who say that they love her and that she's like family, but the moment she has something that they don't or the moment that the positions of power shift, their real personalities come out. And I think that's ultimately the thesis of this movie. It's done in the framing of a whodunit, but if you look at this, you look at The Last Jedi, it kind of is something I think that Ryan Johnson's been trying to say for a while now and he just does it masterfully across different genres and across different formats yeah kind of the theme of anyone can be the hero right there's a hero in all of us if we do the right thing if you will and that's what benoit blanc says to marta at the end of the movie you won this not because you played their game but because you played your own game because you decided to save fran or at least attempt to save fran that's what actually got the story unraveled and how we were able to figure out who the murderer was. So not because you were, you know, doing the mind tricks that the family was trying to do to get her to renounce the inheritance, but because she stuck to her guns, knew what was right, and followed through with her intuition that, you know, it ended up working out for her in the end. And her motivations were really pure, right? She was going to turn herself in, but then Harlan rightly points out that her mother might be turned in. There would be a lot more scrutiny if, you know, she's been investigated. I mean, as we've discussed before, she should have been anyway, but that was the reasoning behind why she even went along with the plot that Harlan had suggested in the beginning and then why she helps Fran and why she even was so dear to Harlan in the first place because she just was a good person surrounded by all of these really spoiled people. Like she just stood out. Right. And it's interesting, Clacia, kind of what you were getting at. The whole family says that they care about her and each member of the family, I think when they have a moment alone with her or a, a slight, you know, hug, they whisper in her ear, I wanted you at the funeral, but I got outvoted. Like, how and are you they, doing, kiddo? Yeah, yeah like, they all say that to her. And they all pretend to care for her, but she actually does care for those members of the family. And that's what, you know, is her triumph. That's how she comes out on top in the end. She even tries to protect them, right? In the beginning, Benoit Blanc is asking her, like, hey, did John Don Johnson's character have an affair? Did this person do that? And she's like, tries to lie. I mean, she cannot. She vomits, so it gives herself away. But her instinct is to protect them, even though she probably knows deep down that they wouldn't protect her. I don't know. It's possible that she thinks the best in people. I, they don't really talk about that too much if how surprised she is that they turn on her but i guess that's not the point she just has a really big heart and she's a good person i think we should get into each of the family members and the characters because you know tying back to what you were saying about the clue influences each of those characters in those movies have their unique 
outfits and personalities that are also distinct and different from one another. But in that movie as well, they're all kind of playing their own game and they're all at fault. It's the same thing here where, you know, we have such, you know, distinct characters between them with their own personalities as part of this family. And it all kind of leads to their undoing, especially with their father-in-law, what have you. That's the reason why he decides to cut them off. You know, with Tony Collette's character, her free-spirited, you know, hippie mom, Instagram influencer lifestyle, it seems like such a free-flowing, fun quirk. But then really, she's stealing money from him to fund her Instagram candle scent, whatever skincare line. goop yeah. ass company. <laughs> right. um, and same with Walt, Michael Shannon's character. He seems to be the only one who's staying with the family legacy of working on the books. But really, he's just trying to get some of that money for himself that, you know, siphoning off from what the dad's accomplishments are by trying to sell movie rights. And even though it's distinctly against the dad's wishes to do any TV or movie, he's talking about a Netflix deal and that all is their undoing in the end. Yeah. And like, I think the fact that Walt was pushing an adaptation shows exactly his mindset and why Harlan, I think didn't respect him. He wasn't trying to push Harlan to do anything different. He wasn't himself writing or finding writers. He just wanted to adapt and remake and reboot his father's original work, which kind of, I think to Harlan indicated he had no desire to really be involved in what the company stood for. He just wanted to milk as much money out of it as possible. And I think that specifically showed Walt's true character. He kind of comes off as this aw shucks kind of guy and he has a walking stick, which they never explained. And you kind of- Also a murder mystery trope, I feel like, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Someone always has to have some weird cane or something or a yeah. monocle. Some defect, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, he clearly comes off as the kind of ill-begotten son, I guess, you know, the one that's maybe the least respected, but he's just as bad as the rest of them. Right, and so- to finish off the family, you got Jamie Lee Curtis, who is the eldest daughter. She pretends to be this self-made woman herself, just like her father. And they, they have this bond. They built their companies themselves. But rightly, Chris Evans points out, yeah, she built that up with a $1 million loan from her father. Like Very Donald you know, Trump. Yeah. <laughs> right? I was right? going to say, it reminds me of a certain someone. <laughs> and then her husband, played by Don Johnson, you know, is having an affair. And so there's a motivation there because Trombie, he says, you have to tell my daughter or I will. So they all have some sort of motivation to get rid of Trombie in some way. And yet, see, those are the misdirections, the red herring, because in the end, it's none of these. And that's what I really liked about the Rashman style interviews at the beginning of the movie is I personally thought each of them seemed very innocent um, when they were giving their testimonies about where they were and what they were doing that night. None of them seemed like they had ulterior motives. They were just giving their recount of what happened that night. And they just kind of seemed like the family members. But then as the story goes, after the surface level introduction to their characters, we get to see more and more of who they actually are. Their true nature comes out. Who they really are as characters comes to the surface. And it adds for a much more fun story because you don't really know where any of them are really going. Because right after that sequence, it shows them each kind of taking their steps after the interview to cover their own back, make sure that their disagreement with Harlan doesn't come to the surface later on. 
Yeah, and it's important to note, too, that the most important character that's missing from all those introductions is Chris Evans' character, Ransom. And I really remember thinking, like, well, this is really weird that Chris Evans is not here. Everyone keeps saying Ransom, Ransom, Ransom. Where is he? The cops are asking for him. They're calling him. There's a... There's several moments in which the cops are like, I still haven't gotten a hold of Ransom. And you're kind of like, well, yeah, shouldn't he be your number one suspect then? He's the only one that's not here. But then we find out that Marta's responsible, or so we think. So that kind of goes out the window. So they literally introduce to you the most obvious suspect in the most obvious way. But then because of the flip, we were like, well, okay, wait, what happened now? And then when Chris Evans comes back and he starts trying to uh, manipulate Martha and he kind of wins her over because he realizes the only way to get his share of the will is to work with her and convince her that he can help her and exchange, I'll get my cut because he knows that he's not going to get anything from trying to manipulate his family. That's just like, you know, the student trying to overturn the master. These are the same people that are sniping at the will reading. So he knows there's no point in trying to go anywhere with them, but he sees how vulnerable and how innocent Martha is. And he uses that to his advantage. And even then I still wasn't sure he was the killer. So honestly, this movie did a great job of taking all of those tropes, all of those elements that we thought we knew and just really packaging it in a way that is I think fresh and just really fun to watch, which is what you want out of a movie. Ultimately, I want to go into a theater and I want to see something fun and engaging at first and foremost. And then not only did this movie do that, but then it also did a lot more. Something I wouldn't expect, right? That's what I want out of a movie is to see something that I wouldn't expect to see. And that's what I really loved about Ransom's character as well is they hit you with like that triple quadruple misdirection because like you said he's not there so you're like okay chris evans has something to do with this and then we see marta did it and then your question is well what does ransom have to do with this then he comes back and marta tells him the truth and then so you're like oh so he didn't do it because she's telling him all about this and then when they're on the car chase i started to think okay this leads me to believe Ransom did do it because he's riding with her to make sure she falls into his plot, which actually ended up being the case. But then later when he gets arrested and she goes to the laundromat where Franny is, I started thinking, well, then how could he be involved with <laughs> right. it? Because she's, he's not here. He was obviously in the police station. So I thought it was really cool. Lots of misdirection throwing you off the scent all along the way. And honestly, the movie kicks off with both Marta and Chris Evanson's character, Ransom, both having an alibi. They have left the house. So they're actually not considered as suspects in the beginning. I mean, according to the cops, we as the audience are suspicious. Like, okay, where is he? What has, what's going on here? You know, he had the fight with his grandfather. But from the cops' perspective, like these two are, no, they're, they're not on that short list of suspects. Man, there are so many more little clues that, this podcast, if we don't contain ourselves, could go two hours, I feel like. <laughs> I feel but, like getting close to that already. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, there were clues along the way that I feel like I should have picked up on that Marta really wasn't ultimately responsible because they talk about when they're giving the sequence of what happened the night he died that the 13 Reasons Why Girl, sorry, her name is escaping me. Catherine Langford playing Meg. They get into the reason why Meg woke up was because the dogs were barking at someone outside. But they show when Ana de Armas was coming into the house, the dogs came up to her and greeted her and were like licking her and were happy to see her and weren't barking at her. And it kind of made you think, oh, this is where the dogs were making noise, but it wasn't because they weren't barking at her. They later or earlier barked 
at ransom who was coming back to the house i think it was later during the will reading that's such a good point i totally oh my god this would be a so <laughs> all right i think that's a pretty good segue into i think what i thought was pitch perfect about this movie uh where do i start I, guys i don't even know how to pick <laughs> i think i'm gonna go with the set design of the house and it kind of goes back to the mansion just being a classic murder mystery trope so it's really easy to get lazy and like oh let's just find a really old kind of house that's somewhat victorian looking and you know on a spooky hill which they did but it was more about the details inside the house so not only did you have these really great tchotchkes these like little pieces of personality that kind of help you figure out who harlan was all these weird kind of dolls and and art on the wall um you also get the you know the Chekhov's gun if you will of the the knife chair or the knife display that's sitting in I want to say the downstairs parlor room that we see several times as characters kind of come in out of the house and then you see it kind of framed in the background almost around someone's head like a halo like all right this thing has to come into play what the hell is the deal with this like knife display and then just like all the little nuances of his office his study how everything was just stuffed it was stuffed with with things and with memories and with collectibles and just made you think this is this guy's house nothing in the house was like this doesn't make any sense and then that's not even getting into all the different items that we kind of uncovered franny the housekeeper's stash in the little clock and then that comes back into play where the toxicology report is hidden there's so many little the fake window oh my god the fake window guys can i just say i went to a very creepy house for a wedding that had what i want to say was a fake window with a doll's face in it and that's what it reminded me of (laughs) oh my god and i was like i've seen this um it was just everything about it was amazing and i want to just live in the house i wanted to go on a tour lionsgate if you're listening make this house like a set where people can tour through it i will pay you money it's amazing and then put on murder mysteries because it was fantastic so i read that the house that the movie was filmed in um has been used for a bunch of movies including ghostbusters the remake um but when Ryan Johnson and the uh, the cast and crew got to this house, they were so excited with the beauty of the house. They actually used a lot more of the house than other films have. So that definitely showed there was a love affair with this house, with the set. Because that's also a very classic trope, right? Like the setting where all these characters are stuck in one place. They're in this home. That actually reminds me of one of my favorite lines where Chris Evans like, our ancestral home. Oh, and, I love and that. Like, uh, he bought it from some immigrants a few years ago yeah. or whatever it was, like in the 70s or whatever. I can't remember the exact time. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> there were some good moments. Some yeah, good I, moments. I wrote down the house is perfect in my notes when I was watching it as well because it perfectly characterizes the murder mystery of the story. It just adds so much. Clay, you mentioned it all. It It's perfect for what the movie is trying to do in the setting it's trying to create. The other thing I wanted to touch on was the uh, the knife display in the parlor, like you mentioned. When they're doing the Rashomon-style interviews, all of the family members are offset a little to the right of the knife display, but when Ana de Armas has her interview she's placed right in the center so all of the knives are going right to her head and so i thought while i was watching okay this definitely means something there's a reason why all the others were off to the side and she was placed right in the middle and it kind of started to seem like it would make sense that she was the killer and that's why they placed her there but to daniel craig's line later in the movie it really symbolizes the rest of the family and how they were treating her and going after her. And when he says 
she's been nothing but great to you and your family and you all come out here knives out and beaks bloody. That's what that really meant is that it's kind of a foreshadowing. She's at the center with all these knives pointed right at her head. People trying to bring her down. So I thought that was really great. Beautiful best. I know really a lot of respect for Ryan Johnson after this movie. And actually that brings me to my fun fact for this episode. Um, On Adamras, we can all agree did an incredible job. Mm. She has this perfect balance Mm. of like, She's very cute, but also very mm. beautiful and sexy. But and also plays this uh, character with so much heart. And she almost didn't take the role, so she what? was offered really? the so she was offered the role. But they actually gave her very little information. I think all she had was like Latina housekeeper and this murder mystery. And she wasn't sent the script. So she didn't know that Marta's character was going to be sort of the heart and soul of this movie. And so she's like, listen, I'm Cuban. I'm, you know, I'm very proud of my heritage. I'm not going to play a stereotypical character. You know, I don't know if she was like my star is rising, but you know, like she was probably protective of her career and where it's going. So she insisted on getting the script. And then when she saw that how important Marta's character was, she took the role, but you know, they almost risked not, getting her because they wanted to protect the secret so badly. Good job on you, Ana Dharmas. Also, we've mentioned so many stars that are in this movie, and she's probably the least well-known of the set, and yet she is the, the centerpiece of it all. And so that was a risk that Ryan Johnson took that really paid off. Yeah, when I was watching the promotional material for this movie, I would have never guessed that she was the main character. Yeah, same. In like the trailers, it was all Daniel Craig and then the other stars that were the tertiary cast members like Chris Evans and Jamie Lee Curtis and Michael Shannon and Don Johnson. Yeah. But if you had known, it would have been a giveaway to exactly, some extent. Yeah. So I think and that was part of the added mystery to it. Yeah, that's what was great about the trailer. Like you said, gave you a little taste of what the tone of the movie was. And then... If I remember correctly, it ended with Daniel Craig's line of there's been a murder and I've eliminated no suspects. And it was like, that's all you needed to know. I'm in, you know, murder mystery. We don't really know the plot or who the characters are. So that's all you needed. But well, if you had to change something, what would you have changed? I mean, this was obviously so well thought out and perfected to a T. I didn't really have anything. The only piece I could maybe come up with was obviously Marta's character. It was super important for her motivations that she was an immigrant and her mother was illegal. And that's kind of what was driving her to protect her innocence because she knew if she was exposed that they would dig into her family and that would have negative effects on her family. But I just thought the conversation they had in the living room in front of the fireplace like directly about today's issues with immigration and you know they're coming over we need to build a wall whatever it was about i just felt it was a little on the nose i think those things tend to age poorly you know if we're watching this again in the 2030s people might just be like oh yeah well what was that whole deal again hopefully you God, know, you're it, optimistic it, i really yeah. hope that's the yeah. case yeah, I, let's hope that's the case but You know, it could just be something that feels dated and aged about the movie. And so I thought there was enough there on that plot line and that motivation. It's brought up a couple times. 
Um, Michael Shannon brings it up when he goes to address her at her family's apartment saying, oh, you know, if you give the money back, we can protect you and your family. It's still there the whole time. That one conversation just felt a little ham fisted on the nose for me, but you know, I didn't mind it too much. I, I thought this film was great and there was really nothing that should have been changed. So I read that actually that was a nod to Agatha Christie who liked to include a lot of the issues of the time that she was writing in her stories. She wasn't writing them to be timeless and I, maybe it, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. And um, to your point, it didn't bother me because I think it just like, it felt like things those characters were going to say, but I'd also agree with you. Did it necessarily enrich the movie? Possibly not. We could have used that time somewhere else. That's cool. I didn't know that about Agatha Christie and that makes me like it more, to be honest. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. It was a little bit ham-fisted compared to how nuanced the rest of the dialogue and the writing is in the movie. But I think that scene kind of pushed two things along really well. The first thing is that it highlighted how hypocritical a lot of the family members were. Because up until that point, they were all kind of sharing in their grief with Marta and making her feel like she was part of the family. But there's a moment in which Don Johnson's character kind of hands her his plate because he's done with it. Mind you, she's a nurse. She's not their housekeeper. She doesn't work for any of them, actually. She only worked for Harlan. And because she's there, he thinks, okay, take my plate away from me now. So I thought that was interesting for the audience to see, to kind of hammer home that these people are hypocrites, but also separately for Marta to get more worked up about her situation to really kind of make it obvious why she went along with what Harlan suggested. Because, you know, you can kind of maybe take a step back and say, this was clearly an accident. Maybe if she just comes forward immediately once his body's discovered, if he decided not to kill himself, she would have been harmed, but maybe they would not have investigated her as deeply. Um, but you can tell that it's kind of born of this fear that she's had that's repeated by the people that are calling her family. Yeah, I mean, her motivation is so integral to this movie. Like, why on earth did she go through with it? Why did she not just turn herself in? She could have told Harlan that she was going to do it and then just not, right? She could have immediately just called the cops at that moment and just ended it there. But that motivation that she was trying to protect her mother was so strong and maybe hammered in a little bit too much. But I think it was important to show why she would not only in the beginning go through with it, but continue to keep this ruse up was really important. Yeah, and to your point about the characters pretending to really care about Marta and on surface level, oh, your family, you're part of this family, we love you. So I'm pretty sure she's Paraguayan. I don't think they actually tell you, which is part of the yes. the joke that this family pretends to care so much, but they have no idea. Yeah, each like of where them she's has from. a different place. Yeah. I think they start from. with Ecuador, and then they go to right. Paraguay, and they're so and then- certain they know. And even they change it up all the time. Yeah, they're just very selfish people. <laughs> and through these kind of gaffes of different countries that they all think she's from, we see more of who these characters actually are. And it's not easy to do in a movie. And it's it's a really impressive job. But if we had to pick one thing, person, or place that does not belong in this movie, you guessed it, the J.B. Smoove Award. J.B. Smoove. What would it be? I'm struggling to think of what it would be. I think the J.B. Smoove Award handily goes to the car chase scene in the Hyundai. It was a funny little gag. And I think it could have ended when she floored it but was only going 60 and the cops were chasing her down. I like that and I one, caught yeah. up to her. Yeah. yeah. It was if that amazing. ended there, 
I thought it would have been fine. But when she goes into the city and then goes through the back alleys and kind of makes it an actual mini car chase before they catch her, I was like, okay, this doesn't really feel like it belongs in this movie. It kind of felt like a car commercial, actually. At one point, I was like, oh, I wonder if they were sponsored. Like, I remember thinking that. So you're right. It did sort of pull you out of the movie. It wasn't as bad as some of the other JB Smooth Award recipients, but if we had to pick something in a pretty phenomenal film, I'll give it to you. Yeah, I would yeah. agree with that. So, guys, let's give our ratings. Will, what'd you think? My rating for this movie will be 3.78 prop knives. I think I like this a little bit more than you will. I'm going to give this 4.2 out of 5 morphine syringes. I loved this movie, but and as I said in the beginning, like this movie was made for me. I love suspense movies. I love whodunits. Like this is, and again, when you add something original, oof, can't get enough of it. And this is something that I feel like I would watch again, would recommend to a million people. So I'm going to give this a 4.9 out of Ooh. five games of Go. Guys, That's how much I loved it. Mine and Will's eyebrows both were like, what? <laughs> wow. This is- I mean, it's good, but 4.9. I really love it. Is it a Jurassic Park? I mean, as I told you guys, I was giddy. I was so excited. I was like eating a giant bowl of ice cream. I was just so happy. This was at Alamo, not in her home. So very comfortable. (laughs) I actually was just drinking lots of coffee. Sponsor Alamo. (laughs) Hashtag sponsor Alamo Draft House. For me, this is a movie I definitely want to see again. And if I watch it again and enjoy it as much as I enjoyed it the first time, I think my rating for this movie would go up, but it's one with these murder mysteries. Like I said, I like to be a little apprehensive and maybe give it another watch through and see if there are any other mm-hmm. plot holes that kind of come up upon a rewatch that make you go, Oh, that is something. Yeah, no, That's forgot. totally fair. I still loved it. And for me, like the rewatchability, the, um, the joy I had while watching it. And of course there are plot holes. No movie is perfect, but as long as they're not so glaring that it actually ruins the movie for me, where I can't think of anything but that plot hole, I'm willing to let it slide. That's fair. Yeah. I agree with that, Malika. I enjoyed this movie. I think I will definitely see it again, maybe in theaters. Maybe I'll wait till it's streaming, but I usually have a pretty good sense of how I feel about a movie the first time around, even if I do see it again. So I'd be surprised if my rating changed, whether it went up or down. But either way, I think I'm kind of middle of the pack here, you know, like literally like Will's like a 3.8 almost. I'm rounding up like it's a 4.9 somewhere in the middle. I think that's a pretty fucking good movie all yeah. around. Really good. Agreed. Movie. Agreed. And yeah, if you guys end up seeing the movie again, we can update our listeners with our new rankings. Indeed. That's sweet, sweet Instagram content they want. One last final thought. One quote that really ties together the whole plot of this movie comes from Harlan Thrombey when he's talking to Marta about his grandson, Ransom. He says, there's so much to me in that kid, confident, stupid, protected, playing life like a game without consequences until you can't tell the difference between a stage prop and a real knife. And not only does that tie into the actual climax where he's attempting to murder her, you know, he says, well, if a penny a pound grabs a knife and tries to kill her and it ends up being a prop knife, but it also ties back into what makes the relationship between Marta and Harlan so strong is that she is someone who can tell the difference between a knife and a prop knife when, you know, she's fumbling with her medications that she's going to give him. And as Daniel Craig brought up, there is a difference between the two liquids, the viscosity and the color. There's a slight difference. 
and because she's a good nurse, she did grab the right one based on, you know, what the actual medication was. And so it kind of points to the strength of the relationship between her and Harlan and then the real difference between Ransom and Harlan, even though he talks so much about why they're alike. Yeah, because she was the real thing. And then it kind of makes that final shot of her standing on the balcony, looking down upon the Thromby family while drinking out of that mug. Hey, now. That says my house, my rules. Yeah, it was great. My mug. It was yeah. the perfect ending to this movie. <laughs> Loved it, was, it. Yeah, it was great. It was great. And with that, that's the end of this episode. Thank you all for listening and catch us next time. Bye. Later.